With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I'm James Kreppi and here's Aaron Fentress and we'll be looking back at another Oregon win, but another Oregon win where it was not exactly the most impressive of performances, certainly not the most dominant of performances by any stretch of the imagination. So we will get into that and preview a bit of this week's matchup at UCLA, but Oregon comes back to beat Cal 24-17 on Friday night at Austin Stadium. Needed a couple of touchdowns in the fourth quarter in order to accomplish it. Anthony Brown Jr. performing particularly well in the fourth quarter, but obviously some spottiness, particularly from the offense, earlier in the game. Defense was dominant for another huge stretch of the game, just as it was against Stanford. Got tested again late with a not just two-minute drive like was the case against Stanford. It was really a four-minute drive, almost five-minute drive, the entire last possession. And unlike Stanford, uh, stood tall at the goal line and came up with a big stop late. So what were your impressions and takeaways, Aaron, from a 24-17 win? Yes, a win for Oregon, <laughs> which improves the 5-1, and one, uh, but another win where... Obviously, the fan base uh, didn't exactly feel thrilled during the course of the game and probably didn't feel terribly great after the game uh, either. But what was your some of your uh, takeaways from it? Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't surprised based on what we saw against, you know, in the first half of Stony Brook and then against Arizona until the very end, the last part of the fourth quarter. And then, of course, they lost to Stanford. So this is pretty much what Oregon is. I mean, let's just call them what they are. They're in a, they're a good Pac-12 team, but they're not dominant. And they're not dominating the, the weaker teams in the conference. I mean, Stanford beat them. They're 3-4. and four. They almost lost to Cal, which is 1-5. and five. And Arizona had the ball down one possession in the fourth quarter, and they're 0-6. <laughs> so I'm tired of hearing that they play down to the competition. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I, I just think Oregon has just a lot of different issues that hold them back from being dominant. But a win is a win. And for me, I've give, you know, I never came into the season thinking playoffs – I wasn't even really thinking playoffs after Ohio State. For me, you know, if I were to take a fan's position, I, I'm just like, can we just win the North? <laughs> like, can we just win the North Division and go from there? Because I, I feel like more losses are coming based on how they've been playing. But Brown did show well in the fourth quarter. Kayvon was amazing. The defensive stand was nice. But my God, it was Cal, yo. <laughs> like, it was Cal. They're not good. It shouldn't have been that close. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this. Cal is better than their record indicates. They are. Um, go back to even before the season, the preseason. They were picked higher 
than their record indicates. That just they're shows the media doesn't know what they're doing. Season. <laughs> they're going to end up having a disappointing season. It already is a disappointing season. But they're probably going to end up having a losing season when they were expecting, in Berkeley, they were expecting to not just have a winning season. They were expecting to have no, wor- no worse than a third-place finish in the division. Now it looks like they are probably going to end up in last. And that's, you know, obviously, again, go back to before the season started, you know, even after disappointing start to non-conference play, still a team that felt like it could compete. Not having Coin Dang certainly hurts them. But having an inside linebacker, really edge guy, um, he kind of moved over to edge anyway. But having him, yes, it makes an impact. But in terms of the overall value that he would have added had he been there either on Friday or in any of the prior games that he has missed so far and will continue to miss, unfortunately, is not to the point where they're going to go from being a one and four team entering Friday or one and five now to a winning team. You know, that he, he doesn't solve all their ills. But they are a better team than the record indicates. They are. That, what does that mean in terms of should Oregon still have played better against them throughout the course of the game? Yeah. Yeah, they should have. Having said that, there were, by way of output and overall production, and especially on the defensive side, some pretty strong results during the course of the game, particularly on the defensive side. Uh, yes, they, you know, the opening drive, Cal had a lot of success. They did. But after that, they, you know, mainly because they converted a bunch of third downs that were third and short, which, yes, the defense is allowed to stop that. But they were third and short. They were favoring the offense uh, by way of, you know, from a statistical standpoint. After that, the defense did do well. And I don't make as big a deal about the late stand as some others. I mean, to me, that's, yes, it's a bit, don't get me wrong. It's help, it, it wins you the football game. So obviously it's, it has importance. But I don't blow it out of proportion because to me, that's like, well, that's, Basically, like you did your job, like you were supposed to do, like you, you were quote unquote supposed to do that. If you're the defense, you think you're supposed to stop them, and for the offense, you think they're supposed to score. So, I mean, I, you know, I yes, they they came up with a big stop. It was different than Stanford. They executed. They came up with a big stop late. Yes, and and nearly had him stopped. You know, a couple plays earlier, before, you know, basically by a yard on an incredible flip play uh, by Garbers there. But ultimately. You know, I, I don't make more of, of that final stop. I make more of the long body of work in the middle of the game where the defense was not allowing very many yards at all uh, and really not allowing first downs almost at all uh, for a huge swath of the game. Having all said that, there were some high points for the that We've said this almost like every single game now. Some high points for the offense and also some real, real head scratchers. And this is a team that has, so far, the only thing consistent about Oregon has been its inconsistency. Inconsistency, yeah, dude, you're gonna say that. Yeah, and that's and, and listen, there's a lot of team. First off, that's pretty much outside of Georgia, and to a certain extent, Cincinnati. Get, but you know, and they they have played some better competition early, but their caliber of schedule the rest of the way is gonna hurt them a little bit. Outside of them. That's pretty much all of college football this season. And this is still a top 10 team, not just because, well, are they? No, at times they've played like it. At their best, not just the Ohio State game. At their best, they play like a top 10 team. 
maybe even top five, quite honestly, at their best. At their worst, they don't play like a top 25 team. That's the problem is that this team has such extremes. Can they get better over the course of a season? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But they have to show it. (laughs) They actually have to do it. And they have been inconsistent. Having said that, I do think that the offense as a whole had some particular high points. We'll get to them coming up. Uh, But Travis Dye in particular, I thought, was a major high point. Major high point. And yes, the fourth quarter for the offense as a whole, but Dye, Brown, uh, some of the receivers as well. So there was a lot going on there uh, in the course of the game that, like I say, not all of it was uh, was terrible, contrary to uh, to the belief of some, particularly uh, many who were in attendance on Friday night. But again, we'll get into it more coming <laughs> up here. Starting with the defensive stand, we touched on a little bit there, Aaron. Uh, what do you, from the big picture of it, what do you take from it? And to the specifics of it, what do you take from it? By way of, again, it ultimately wins from the football game. But a Cal did sustain an 18-play, 73-yard drive over nearly five minutes to get to that point. It's just that they, they finished the draw. I mean, they finished closing it out, unlike the Stanford. Well, I mean, the Stanford game, I guess you could say that they did finish it out, but the B.I. call was kind of questionable. But just that they, yes, they allowed Cal to drive nearly the length of the field to almost win it. That to me is not a good look at all, but at least they figured out a way to make plays and a lot of plays to keep them out of the end zone to preserve the win. Now, I I agree with what you're saying about that shouldn't be overblown in terms of what it means big picture wise, because like you said, they did their job. They preserved the seven point lead. But given what happened with Stanford, I think it was just good that they were able to figure things out and, and, and keep Cal out of the end zone. That said, I feel like a good team a good offense probably would have been leading by seven with the ball <laughs> in that situation, but they definitely go down and, and they finish that drive. And that's where the alarm bells for me are is that, okay, you, you barely kept Cal out of the end zone. Good job. But what are you going to do against, against better teams? We've already seen what happened to you against a slightly better team in Stanford and they scored and then scored in overtime. So it's a mixed bag for me, but at least they were able to hold on because, my God, dude, if Cal scores and goes for two, which they might have done and, w- and win that game, then then you're talking – the boos we heard in, in that stadium, or you heard them live, would have just been enormous, a, a roar. Uh, there would have been a major meltdown in the Duck Nation. So I kind of felt almost relieved for Duck Nation <laughs> that they didn't allow that to happen. But you're right, in the bigger grand scheme of things – what does it exactly mean in terms of the overall performance of the defense? And, and to your point also, you said they had great moments during the game in terms of shutting down Cal. They did, but again, it's one of the worst offenses in the conference. Oh, yeah. Let's not – again, I'm not making Cal out to be a world beater by any stretch. They may be better than their record indicates, but they are by no means explosive at all. At all. In, in fact, they are not explosive. What they did show offensively was, and this we've we've talked about this like every freaking week, and I'm not going to belabor the point about it, <laughs> but it came up it came up on the final drive a little, it came up more earlier on, it came up a little bit on the final drive. Multi tight end sets are just absolutely killing this defense, killing this defense. 
Where's your front seven, man? Come on. I just, I, I, I mean, absolutely killing this defense. And they got, again, it wasn't so much on the final drive because Cal wasn't utilizing a lot of multi-tight end sets on that drive. Not a lot. It came up more earlier on. But when it, what happens is, is when you let that happen over the course of earlier drives with two tight end sets, three tight end sets, one, I'm not sure if it's four tight ends or three tight ends and an extra tackle. Uh, I just couldn't see all the numbers. But bottom line, they went out there with literally with what basically was a nine-man surface. <laughs> it was pretty unbelievable. Um, and Oregon doesn't counter by way of personnel packages. And I just look at that and go, I mean, if you're not going to do it against what looks like essentially 14 personnel, I'm going... <laughs> All right, whatever. Um, but yeah, and they went out there with with two tight ends and two backs with the full back, and that's why I say fourteen right. or like twenty three or whatever. But ultimately, right, you yeah. get the point. A whole lot of additional blockers. <laughs> right. It's bothered Oregon's defense the whole season, but when they do it earlier on and had success earlier on with that, and those are just those are bigger bodies that are then creating you know a lot of holes running. And yes, Cal threw in a little bit, a little bit of a passing game there. They did it particularly out of, I think one of the 13 personnel sets um, when they drive into the West end zone. Uh, they had one pass off of it to a, to a couple of tight ends. I think they did that two or three times in the game. So they did, they did integrate the pass a little bit. It wasn't just always run out of it. But with that said, do that over the course of a game, wear down a defense physically. Now you get into a, what turned into nearly five minute drive, but basically a four minute drill and you get inside the red zone and you're going a season long in plays for an Oregon opponent. You know, the defense being on the field for 18 plays was a season long. Well, now look at how worn down they are. Yeah. Forget about the success that came earlier in terms of forcing punts and stops and those things and a fourth down stop. Yeah, that, that all happened. That was certainly the highlights for the defense. But then when the defense starts getting pushed along, what happens? Well, there's a couple of penalties. There's defense, another defensive holding call, rightfully so on this occasion, but there was a defensive holding call on a fourth down. On a fourth and five, yeah. Yeah, so there were some multiple penalties late. Uh, the one well, on also, Stevens also, was ca- just bad. But uh, It was a good call, your, but it was a bad penalty. Yeah, along your point, though, uh, Cal went out and got a, a holding penalty. They were first and yeah. 20. And they picked it up in two plays. And the first play yeah. was an eleven yard rush, which I And the to big me was reason like, Right, and the big ahead. reason why, and that goes to my point, the big reason why was as they when they were leaning on Chris Brooks late, Brooks is a hoss. He is huge. He's a big guy. And when you lean on a defense, even if you're not necessarily having success on the earlier drives, but when you lean on a defense as Cal is going to. And as other opponents have and will continue to in the Pac-12 North against Oregon, now all of a sudden you've got a 230-some-odd pound running back, and he's just going to start knocking over dudes Mm -hmm. who've been leaned on for as long as they were during the course of the game. That's how you get a Chris Brooks break. Look at how many on that one run you mentioned in particular. I think it was back-to-back runs he had that were for like 11 and 9 or 11 and 12, something like that. Uh, yardage wise, yeah, he ripped off a couple of those runs because he just knocked through people. She's a bigger guy. He's bigger than some of Oregon's linebackers. 
He's a big running back. Now, elite? No. No, he's not. He's not the best running back on that team. But to turn to him late when you need him in that kind of drive or in third and short situations, yeah, that's exactly the kind of body type you want to lean on. And they did. And, cre- and credit to them. They, they had success, you know, in, in sustaining that drive by doing it. And there's no way, and that's, well, in any situation, really, a first and 20 after a holding penalty, you should allow the other team to rush for the first down on two carries for 21 yards. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, I can understand a first and 20 playing it a bit to a passing situation. So then, all right, it looks like, you know, he, lips, you know, he rips off one decent run. But when it's still second and longer, certainly, and they pick it up again, you just go like, all right. You know, come on. Now again, that hey, they fourth they forced the fourth down, defensive hold when it was just unnecessary. Beyond the fact that it was a bad penalty because it come on the situation that it was, it was unnecessary on the play, and the game was over there. Should have been over there, uh, and then it obviously sets up more series of downs, other things. So again, um, to me, yes, standing tall at the in the end zone there, uh, particularly when you're in goal line, the stop. The really, the really nice read by the defense uh, on, I want to say it was the third down play on the run by Garbers on third and goal. That was just a really good read Man, by the defense. And that was there before the tight end, before the timeout. That, that QB yeah. draw was there. Yeah. They called timeout. Then they call it, but there was a backer there and the next, yeah. when they finally ran and they got stopped. Yeah. That was, and they had that run that, that, <laughs> they had run that concept. It wasn't the same formation. No, well, they, but they had run the, that a couple of times. Fake the fly sweep and then he ran yeah. the that play. Yeah. They, they had run one. Earlier in the game with Garbers, I want to say it was the first or second quarter. It was definitely the first half. But they had run one earlier in the game where one of the blockers was, I think it was a fullback actually, fullback or tight end, but it was offset to the left of the formation. And on that run, he wasn't. Um, but ultimately, it was the power with the guard. It was a double power move and, and around. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, there was just a good read, good uh, situation by the defense to come up with the read there. And then, of course, the blitz up the middle. And uh, Verone McKinley and Noah Sewell forcing uh, the incompletion to end it. And that's huge. That's, you know, that's... Cal was completely going... unprepared for that. Yeah. And that's that's had really no the... clue. They... For, for as much as we can talk about, oh, well, Cal assembled this drive and they, you know, schematically did this, that, the other. Yeah. And then when it came down to game on the line, ball game on the line, and you're going up a coordinator, uh, up against a coordinator who knows you as well as you know him, and they know exactly what you're going to do and vice versa, and you've got a senior quarterback to turn to on that side and weapons legit, you know, for short yardage weapons. And that's the best you can come up with. Forget about, Oh, well, they're going to bring pressure. He was on the run. I'm not knocking Garbers for the fact that he had to avoid the sack and try to keep the play alive. I'm saying that that where was, was the his best route? Could draw. Yeah. Where was the, as the safety's coming, was, someone's got to be yeah. a slant right now. Someone's the yeah, basically <laughs> they, they had to have an option there for, by way of, there needed to be a oh they're bringing that kind of pressure. Uh, I'm not, this is a, a one not even a step. This is just right. set fire. If I'm gonna if they're throwing, which clearly they at that point had to throw. All right, well set fire and get it out. And they took the set and run backwards because <laughs> yeah. because because their offensive line was just completely unprepared for yeah. uh, the, the blitz that that Oregon brought there. So oh, well. that was the positive side for the defense on that drive in particular, that they came up with certain stops. The penalties obviously were downside. I thought, not to look past them entirely, because Triquois Bridges played well in coverage as a whole. I know he got penalized earlier on that drive. He made several plays in coverage where I'm not, I didn't end up writing down every single pass completion, but 
I'm not Slacker. sure that they completed a ton in his direction on the night. Now, again, like obviously he's not one of the starters. So right. DJ James is in there. Manning got in there. Wright's in there. So he didn't have like the majority of the snaps or anything. But once James left the game midway through the third quarter, Bridges had to come in on quite a bit. And he came up with, I mean, he was just really sound in coverage. Really sound in coverage. I don't believe Cal did complete a pass in his direction. Uh, so like I say, yeah, there's a one penalty late. But he made more good plays than bad, that's for sure. For sure. Uh, not just on that final drive, but as a whole. He played well. Jeff Bassa played well in particular. KT, and we're going to get to him in a minute, was just absolutely uh, beyond a force to be reckoned with. I thought Cal did a terrible job, uh, not just individual matchup-wise. No, you know, You're not going to find too many tackles in the country who are going to win the individual matchup. I thought Cal did a terrible job by way of putting their players in position to succeed. I thought there would be more chipping against KT, more double teams against KT, and they left their tackles on islands a lot. A lot. Yeah. Far more than I would have ever imagined for a team who uses two and three tight ends as much as they do and fullbacks as much as they do. I couldn't believe how much they left their tackles on islands, and he made them pay regularly he was he was constantly just blowing up tackles getting holding calls every which thing he, he was he was a force he was exactly the player that we know he can be that we know he is and he showed that and he got to show it for half a football game you're listening to ducks confidential we'll be back after a quick break I was just amazed at, at Cal's reluctance to make sure you had an extra dude <laughs> to handle him. It was just incredible to me. It's like, can we can, just get someone over there to help? Because even if he slides inside, because a few times he was sliding inside to de-tackle de- de- basically and then just ripping up the guard. But then the tackle could help down and you have, and you have a tight end out, out there to handle whoever's coming off the edge. But they just kept, for the most part, Trying to play him one on one, and that was just destroying them because he was just on it. Like it, he he found his rhythm, he found his groove, he knew what moves to throw at every one of those linemen, and they had no answer for him. He completely disrupted the football game. It was completely, it was impressive. It was probably the most disrupt. I mean, it's probably the most disruptive he's been in the game since maybe the Pac-12 title game against Utah. Did he have two and a half sacks in that game? Yeah, that he had a the, massive. He had a massive. His, be, his best game since then. Game as well. And that was one of the more dominant defensive lineman performances I've seen since, you know, DeForest Buckner was running wild in the Pac-12 several years ago. Uh, but no, he was he was phenomenal. But you know, if I'm if I'm Chip, I got all these good tight ends. I'm chipping the hell out of that guy the entire game. <laughs> There's no way I'm letting Kayvon get one-on-one situations very often. No, you've got to figure out ways to prevent him from being that effective if you're an opposing offense. Uh, you've got, yeah, to your point, whether it's tight ends, whether it's double teams with a guard. Uh, now, to say, look, Cal did do a couple of things, a couple of things. But they did far worse than they did good. That you know, they, they did far more damage to themselves uh, by some of the things that we're talking about matchup-wise than they did positive. But they tried to do at times some of the, th- some of the same things, frankly, that Arizona did. They ran screens. They ran at least one screen, I know for sure, uh, basically behind KT and let him 
get you know let him charge at Garbers in that direction in order to set up the screen and then get the ball out. The problem was that I think there was an incomplete pass because <laughs> they they tried to set up the screen and he just blew up the play. Um, but they were trying schematically to do some things to basically pull him out of some lanes uh, and get him basically effectively take him out of plays uh, in in certain schematic ways. And at times they had, you know, I wouldn't even say mixed success. They had minimal success. There are ways to do it, go about that. Look, to that point, Oregon did it far more effectively against Cal's edge rusher, Cam Good, than Cal did it against Thibodeau, obviously. Uh, and now look, Thibodeau's, you know, a top five, if not the number one overall pick in next year's draft. Cam Good is going to get drafted. He ain't, you know, let's, let's not, you know. So, but having said that, what did Oregon do to neutralize Cam Good? Well, Miles Sala had a terrific game against him. Terrific game against him. He he did a really excellent job on that when he was matched up with him individually. That was one. Two, they did things schematically to either just run away from him. <laughs> real, real complex, run the other direction. Um, that was, you know, several times the 39 yard screen pass to die on first and 20, which was the play of the game. Wasn't it beautiful? I tweeted that I wept a little. That was, <laughs> that was free. It was up. sublime. Die shot through the, what was technically the B gap, but it became a pretty wide B gap at that point, but good <laughs> went wide a B ocean. and kept going around. And Die just slid on through, and the you know the three interior linemen rolled out to the right to pave the road along with the receivers, and it, it did not set up well uh, <laughs> for for Cal's defense. Once that got up in the open space, it actually got to the point late late in the run. Te- technically speaking, just to show you how tr- fast Travis is and and how explosive the play was, he actually outran his blockers. He had to pull up slightly at the end, and when he cut when he cut back to the right mm-hmm. to get more yards, he was also doing it to set up blocks. Because if he stayed in the path he was, he outran all of his <laughs> not right. just the linemen. He outran the receivers. He outran. <laughs> I want to say it was definitely Devin Williams, and I think it was Jalen Red on the play. It was either Red or Hudson. I think it was Red. Um, yeah, I'm almost positive it was Red. Yeah, it was definitely Red. Um, but he outran them down the sideline. He had that much of, of a head, like a, just a complete head full of steam because he was untouched for 25 plus yards. So he just comes sprinting down and yeah, and he cuts back and credit to him again, fought for some extra yards, only came out for, I want to say it was like two or three snaps. I think it was two. Cardwell got back to back runs and I think he popped right back in there. So again, Travis had obviously a huge game, but on that play, that play was not just designed to do what it did. It was designed to neutralize Cam Good and take him out of the play. It did. Mm-hmm. Cal never got that kind of play in the second half. Forget about from a, from a length of play standpoint. They didn't get the setup to take Thibodeau out of a play like that. Those are the things that a team like UCLA and like every opponent on the rest of the schedule for Oregon are going to have to try to do schematically. Like I say, Arizona did it a little bit in the 10 plays that he had in the game. But 
on the t- one of the touchdown pa- basically the touchdown pass that Arizona had in the game when Thibodeau was in. They they screened off, you know, they basically had a delayed release with the tight end. And, you know, he was matched up at the tight end. The tight end just slight delay release and off and away for a touchdown. It can be done. It's not just a matter it's not a matter of knocking the player. The end is assigned to do what they're doing on the play, and the offense schemes it up to do something different. And I think even right. on that play, going back a few weeks, KT actually read the play properly. He realized, oh, I'm they're they're doing this and he almost almost pulled a full stop and momentum and actually almost you know nearly got a hand I think on the ball um so bottom line in terms of his impact on the game it was enormous uh I actually voted for him for Pac-12 defensive lineman of the week because I thought he had that kind of impact I mean, it just it was it was otherworldly uh what he did in the course of half a football game it was pretty incredible so in terms of, you really want to talk about positive, you know, positive thoughts heading into the second half of the season. It starts with him, because Oregon had him for one half against Fresno, really one quarter at full capacity. Missed him for the second half, like I say, really the final three quarters. Didn't have him against Ohio State. Who cares with Stony Brook? Had him for ten plays with Arizona. Played against Stanford. Had a I thought a solid performance as a whole. And then obviously the late targeting call and missed a half a game this past game. He has played less than two games out of the first six games. He's played less than two games. Well, yeah, that's going to be a huge difference in terms of you have that kind of disruptive edge player. And they didn't even have Funa this past game. They had Swinson back and they paired them together occasionally for as much as they basically could. And they got Adrian Jackson back, and he and he made one of the big tackles actually in the entire game. Huge tackle in space. We talk about to our point, tack, a, a play where you can get to the edge and and free something up. He made a huge tackle on a uh, uh, pass to the running back in the flats in open space, where if he misses or that's a broken tackle, that's going for no less than fifteen yards, probably over twenty. And instead, it ended up for, it might have even been negative yards. It was really short. So it was a huge, huge stop there. Having those kinds of players in the lineup, that's the positive for the defense. You know, frankly, I think that we're going to be able to analyze better over the next three, four games, not just their impact, but what this defense really is. Because are they the defense that we've seen give up some chunks and give up some plays? Or are they the defense that, when they're actually not exactly fully stocked, again, they're still down at linebacker, but are they the defense that actually has, with their pass rushers, the ability to create some disruption, create havoc in the backfield, create negative plays, and then that obviously, then everything builds from there. Then it becomes second and longer, third and longer, et cetera, and can get off the field better. Um, So I think we'll see a lot more from that as a whole, more in the games going forward. Two... The offense and Travis Dye. What are your thoughts and impressions from the most productive game of his career? He was awesome. He was great. He did everything. Uh, Mario talked about it the other day about how he he fought for extra yards. Um, he played a smart game in, in every every facet of the game, and uh, he, he looked electric out there. He got a ton of carries. Obviously, Benson was out. Cardwell was there, and got, Card- Cardwell got two right. Um. 
I would still like to see some more backs get some more touches and take some pressure off of Die. But in this particular game, he held up just fine. He wasn't getting smacked around a lot. Um, he didn't take a, a ton of huge hits. But no, he that that was a great performance. It, it was impressive. He to me, he carried the game because while the passing game was sputtering, he at least had enough going on offense to you know help the defense a little bit with field position or just keep the offense moving a little bit while the passing game figured things out. But yeah, absolutely a great game by him. But I just wondered, you know, that main touch is 26, you know, and plus plus all the, the pass protection and stuff. Is is that is that where you want him to be for the next six games plus the conference title game? I don't know. Yeah, I think the the, the look the durability question is going to come up on a on a weekly basis. And it, I, I think in, in fairness to Travis, one, as we mentioned before, even last week, they had never had to ask him for this before because they had CJ. And even last season when CJ went down, first he was limited and then, then he was out the final two games. One, it would have only been two games. And two, there was a big gap between those two games because one was the Pac-12 title game and there was a couple weeks off before the Fiesta Bowl. And three, it still would have just been two games. Not this possibility of eight games. Big difference. So, with all that said, in fairness to Travis, they haven't had to ask him for it before on this kind of volume. Two, I do think that the freshman will get more carries with time. I think the way this game played out a little bit had to do with not just that they were going to lean on him more. I I think they were probably going to get him 20-plus touches regardless. But I think they might have been able to sneak in a few more for some of the freshmen if the offense had just sustained some drives earlier in the game, mm-hmm. you know, or in particular in the limited opportunity they had in the third quarter. So I think they probably would have had a little bit more, but again, ultimately the question is going to be there. And I don't think it has to do with Travis. I think it just has to do with any running back who is not built like, you know, Derek Henry, you know, when you don't have just a massive, you know, monumentally massive body uh, to withstand the hits, when you have a, a running back who's 5'9", 5'10", 5'11", somewhere in that general size, and approximately 200 pounds, those are 205, 210, you know what I'm getting at. Point is, yeah. is any any one of those backs, anywhere in the country, unless they have shown a durability and proven a durability throughout their career, any one of those kind of players is going to face questions when they haven't done it before of, can they withstand this over the course of, for what this team is hoping to do, eight consecutive weeks? That's a lot to ask. It is. When you're not a 225, 235-pound, 6'2", you know, just hulking running back, um, there is a difference. So I think, you know, just to be, like I say, both fair to Travis and also contextualize, we'd ask this question no matter what. You know, then it has nothing to do with Travis Dye specifically. We'd ask this, you know, we would have been asking this, right, frankly, about CJ, because we know with him that durability was always a question, uh, right. in particular. Yeah. So, and and obviously, unfortunately, it it had not been necessarily with the scale and scope of longer term injury. It was always minor injuries, except for the thumb, which ultimately he played through. Just to further the point, he played through for three games before ultimately uh, having the surgery last year. So for Travis, we'll see how it goes going forward. But I thought it was, forget about most productive. I just thought it was the best game of his career. Best game because of the production, best game because 
it's two weeks of buildup of the fact that he is going to have to be the guy, that he acknowledged that he had to be the guy, that he was, that the defense knows it, and that he goes out and has that kind of production on the ground, fighting for the extra yards that he fought for in the air. Again, we mentioned the 39-yard screen pass. That was It, it changed the game at that point. Right. It was massive. Again, it's first and 20 in the fourth quarter, and they and at that point, statistically speaking, you get that kind of hold. Statistically speaking, the probability of scoring goes down astronomically. That play flipped everything and changes the momentum entirely of that drive of, of everything. Huge play. Uh, but for him to be able to do that uh, and have the carries and help out in blocking with the regularity that he did, I mean, on a snap count basis, I want to say on the 63 plays in the game, I'm guessing he probably was somewhere right around 50 to 52. Because I know McGee got in for, I want to say it was only like one or two offensive snaps. Carwell had the two carries. He was in for, I think, four or five other snaps. So, like I say, Die was probably in for somewhere around 52 to 55 of those snaps as a whole. Tremendous. Tremendous. And of that, that he had 26 touches, he touched the ball in half the plays that he was in, basically. (laughs) And that's, like I said, that's why I I thought it was his best game. I I really did. I thought it was his best game of his career and something that Oregon fans have to hope that he's going to be able to replicate on a weekly basis uh, for the next two months because he is going to have to be leaned on a ton. But I do think the freshman as a whole, both Cardwell and McGee, who we saw in limited capacity, uh, this past week, and Trey Benson, who apparently is still just incrementally getting better after the uh, knee injury he suffered at this point ten months ago. Uh, you know, he'll. It sounds like he's going to be closer to full go in the week ahead and weeks ahead, and that's huge. Uh, so if they're able to get, if they're able to just, if they're able to bump his average carries from the thirteen six that it was heading into the game, which was a career high. If he gets to 18, which is a lot, quite frankly, that's more than you could reasonably ask for. By way, and I'm talking on touches, let alone carries. Right. You start incorporating beyond that, and it's it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot for like I say, it's a lot for any running back. It's a lot, uh, and they're going up against a. UCLA team who has the best run defense statistically in the conference uh, this week in particular. Uh, Yes, Washington later on, who has not done as well against the run now for a couple of seasons, but now does have one of their best edge, probably their best defensive players as a whole uh, back this past week. They're going to look a little bit different by the time you get there. Utah, which is just always sound, always sound defensively uh, and has probably one of the top one or two linebackers in the league uh, in Devin Lloyd. So there's not just road tests that are going to be tough or rivalry tests or all these sorts of things. Talking about defensively, what Travis Dye in particular is going to have to deal with by way of hits and volume of hits and the caliber of players who are going to be doing the hitting. There are some experienced players. There are some big players who are going to be coming downhill to hit him <laughs> over the next seven it's weeks. Spe- and. Especially That's when defenses job. aren't, especially when defenses aren't too concerned about you beating them vertically, so they're going to they're going to yeah. be keen on poor little poor little Travis down yeah. there. 
And that's a so, that's something speaking that of which, listen, yeah, that's that's the point that we get to now where I figured we would spend the overwhelming portion of our time <laughs> chatting this week. And I think that the fan base only ever wants to hear about this because after all, it is the quarterback position. So the floor is yours, sir. Uh, <laughs> what did you what what did you see? Uh, Good, bad, ugly and everything in between from Anthony Brown Jr. on Friday. Look, he was better. He got it done in the fourth quarter. Zero doubt about that. The throw to Red was beautiful in terms of that. It, he put it in a, in a place where Red could go get it. Sometimes that's what you need to do in the red zone. It's not going to be necessarily the most accurate pass. But as far as accuracy goes in terms of putting it where your guy can go get it, it was perfectly thrown. And then, of course, he had the rushing touchdown. He led them on some drives to basically win the game, I mean, at the end of the day. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those situations where he did well enough to beat Cal. He did well enough to be the team that only scored 17 points. And when they play these better teams, like this week against UCLA, I've seen zero evidence other than, I guess, Ohio State, which was actually carried more by the rushing attack. Then they rushed for, was it 322 or 280? What was it in that game? They had, in the Ohio State game, they ran oh, for uh, 269. 289? 269, okay. Yeah. I was giving them too much credit. Anyway, um, but there was improvement. I mean, there's... I feel like there was definitely improvement. I just didn't see a passing game that would be capable of beating a better team that could, A, slow down the run a little bit more and force Brown to beat them and also put up more points to create more pressure for the offense to try and keep pace. So that's where I find the negative in his solid performance. I think that, again, it's kind of been a similar theme for him for a couple of weeks now. And that he is a player of extremes. <laughs> yeah. He's a player of extremes. When, you know, at his best, at his peak, at his peak, it's the fourth quarter. Where his fourth quarter production, his fourth quarter scoring, his fourth quarter rushing average, his fourth quarter completion percentage, his fourth quarter quarterback efficiency rating is ahead of multiple quarterbacks were in the Heisman race. Now, to be clear, he is not in that conversation. <laughs> right. But but he is playing in big moments with a level of poise and productivity that is at a very high level, extremely high level. That's what gives you hope by way of when they're in these games and in these close moments that you have somebody who has shown He's won you a couple of football games this season. Now you can tell me that, well, yeah, and he also cost him against Stanford. It was kind of a multifaceted thing, to be quite honest. But sure, it was not, you know, it was more than one player in that game, to be sure. He didn't have his best day, and he was awfully self-critical, to be clear. There, Here in this week, there was progress. There was progress from the prior game. There was progress in the prior games as a whole. Statistically speaking, it might have been his best performance of the season. It was certainly his most accurate. Now, that's where he's at his best was obviously the fourth quarter, really almost the second, large swath of the second half, but especially the fourth quarter. Runs as well in the fourth quarter. We ripped off multiple runs on, on design runs. On uh, There was one run, I can't remember if it was the fourth quarter or not, but one run where he, he it was a totally broken play. Uh, and he got forced to scramble and picked up a first down there. 
So he had a couple of players like that. Design runs or RPOs, rather. His decision-making on the ground was actually, I thought, other than the Ohio State game, might have been his best decision-making on the ground of the season in the running game. In the passing game, yeah, at his best, the throw to Red was spectacular. The throw to Devin Williams down the sideline in the mm, second The back shoulder? The back shoulder was, pass? Yeah, yeah. Tremendous. Tremendous. Because that – at one point, the commentator's talking about, oh, well, he underthrew him a bit. I'm going, underthrew? Mm-mm-mm. Oh, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, the ball was out before Williams ever turned around. Yeah. It wasn't underthrown. It was thrown exactly where it was supposed to be. When Aaron Rodgers That's just an that, he, unbelievable when, degree of confidence, not just in your own ability to throw it, in the receiver to end yeah. up with it. And that was a great throw and a great catch. That was just Aaron a Rod- really Aaron Rodgers does play. that every Aaron Rodgers does that every week, and he's a genius. Anthony Brown does it, and it's overthrown. Conspiracy! Or, under, or underthrown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the point is, is, is over? I mean, under. Yeah, but, but yeah, the point is, is, yeah, at his best, he made some spectacular plays on the ground and in the air. At his worst, <laughs> he's missing all sorts of dudes. At his worst, there were three throws in particular that stood out to me. One that was not egregious, that fans overreacted to. Two that were just inexplicably bad. One throw to, De- to J. Red. And I the third quarter where it sails and quite honestly, I'm just assuming it was supposed to go to Jalen, but it sailed to no man's land. (laughs) It just floated into the ether. And that's a ball that frankly, you're lucky doesn't get picked off. If it does get picked off, it's probably going for six. Um, And one that just has to be there. Just has to be there. And making matters worse on the play was that not only was that just a ball that sails on him, which can happen in a game, but there were other options on the play. There were other guys open on the play. And Red may not have been the best receiver to throw to on the play. So that was one. Another another one for Red, ironically. He stares down Jalen the whole time out of the slot. The safety comes down and basically makes a, you know, it, whether he made the play on the ball or effectively made the play on the ball, it doesn't really matter. It falls incomplete. If you do that as a decoy to get the safety to bite so that Micah Pittman is as wide open as he was on the play, so you then then fire to the post to a wide open field <laughs> for 40, 50 yards. Yeah, good thing to stare down the receiver if your objective is to get to the other receiver who was wide open to the point where had he caught it in stride, he probably could have done backflips on his way in. He was that open. And that one falls incomplete. There was one on a short throw that was just an incompletion, I think, for Hudson. That or it was either Hudson or Red, where it was just low. It wouldn't have gone anywhere because it would have been just dead where it was, but a ball that has to be completed, nevertheless. One that fans overreacted, well, two that fans overreacted to. 
One, there was a check down to die on, I want to say it was a third and long, where in and of itself, it was not the, or it might have been the fourth down, actually. I think it was the fourth down. Uh, it, in and of itself, it wasn't the quote-unquote wrong decision. It wasn't a, a, a by-rule bad decision. Frankly, Travis, you know, had a little bit of space and, you know, if it breaks a different way, he might, he might pick up the first down. The problem was, is that it looked like Spencer Webb was open on the play. In and of itself, though, going to the check down is not, like I say, the inherently wrong decision. It's just that there might have been a more right one. The one that fans way overreacted to, which was inexplicably so, quite frankly, <laughs> was an early third and 14 on a crosser to, to Johnny, which was being set up to get a wall of blockers down the left sideline. The play is designed to hit the crosser in stride with a head full of steam and that if he can then turn to his right and get up the left sideline with that head full of steam, he's getting the 14 and then some. That was the design of the play. There was no other way to go. Converting on third and 14 is not exactly a statistical high likelihood. It is incredibly unlikely. They came up with a play and called a play designed to do exactly what it did. All right, credit Cal. They made a stop on Johnny Johnson shortly after he made the catch. But it wasn't a check down or he didn't look off some other guy. It was designed to do exactly what it did. It's just that the defense happened to stop the receiver well short. But that's one tackler. If he gets through that or that guy's not there, Johnny's turning up field and it's more than a first down. It's a huge explosive play. And the whole idea of like, well, why do you bother doing that on that kind of situation? Well, again, it's a low probability situation. You're trying to set up that, whether it's a screen or it's something like that. It's essentially the same thing. And to our point, like we talked about earlier, when you get in off first and 20 and you're trying to pick up chunk yards, look at what happened. You got a 39-yard play. So sometimes you set up things like this in tunnels and <coughs> lanes so that you can get guys with heads full of steam and get some momentum in order to pick up big chunks of yards. That's what the play was That's designed true. to do. That's true. hundred percent. I saw people. And it wasn't his fault. It went from that. third and nine to third and 14. There was a false right. start. <clears throat> right. I saw people complaining about that, wondering why he didn't throw it downfield. And all the receivers that were allegedly downfield were blocking for Johnson blocking. to come across on the track. But the, the, the problem is when you take the play call, the decision to call that play and you put it in line with everything else that goes around, goes wrong whenever they try and go downfield for the most part. That's where the frustration sets in. It's like third and 14 with Justin Herbert. Are they running that play? Maybe not with Mariota. No, but, but with, with this guy, they're running it because they don't trust him to go downfield because he can't. He doesn't make those reads. Like there was, there was a play where he had a dig wide open over the middle. It might have been the same play you were talking about, but he looked left for the out, which had no chance of being open. By the time he comes right, the backers are in the way he can't make that throw, but it's like, why can't the quarterback take a three-step drop and just gun a dig or gun a comeback or gun something, a corner route or something to pick up third and 14? He can't. Therefore, they run plays like a shallow cross turning into basically a screen on the other side, the Johnny Johnson. That's where the frustration starts piling up. Look, Joe Moorhead conceded as much yesterday by way of that this has not been as explosive an offense as they want it to be so far through the first half of the season. Really? So this, you know, 
they they have been below his averages on this uh, in, in over his play calling career, and uh, and it's not been to the level that they want by way of explosive plays. No one can really argue to the contrary. I've so we've talked about before that look, you can talk about fifty fifty balls all you want. You actually have to sooner or later hit on your share of the fifty, and they have not hit all that many. And yes, right. there was the thirty nine yard you know again screen to Travis. That's a long. Uh, play of the day offensively but that was still a screen you know yeah they had several other 20s and like I say look the the 24 to Johnny we made an incredible catch on that absolutely remarkable catch on that and you yeah. can't even knock the throw you could be like well if you hit him and strike stop it, it was a, a well-thrown ball where the receiver could get it the receiver made a great spectacular catch sometimes that's just what is going to happen on the play fine again the long throw to Devin was great frankly the pass to Hudson where Hudson ends up fumbling, the pass was damn good. The spin by Hudson was better. It's just that, all right, credit the defense. They knocked the ball out uh, along the sideline there as Hudson's fighting for extra yards. The pass to Red for 20 yards and a touchdown. Really nice play. And it couldn't go for any more. It was, it was 20 yards. It was 20. You know, right. It was what it was. If, if you want to really be technical, it was close to like a 27-yard pass. But, you know, be that as it may, it was in the end zone. Fine. He has not hit on nearly enough long passes. Having said that, going forward, two things. One, I think Devin Williams having the kind of game that he just had, you hope that that can spark him like it did a little bit last season. Little bit. Uh, and this is a receiver who apparently needs a little bit of a kick sometimes and a kick start to get something going. And you hope that this is the kind of week that gets that going and he can build on some confidence with that. Start there. Two, with time, means the likelihood that the freshmen are going to be able to break through uh, into the rotation more. And you did see, uh, I believe Franklin it was, uh, I'm almost positive it was Franklin, uh, out there a bit more by way of reps. Whether he got the catches or not is a moot point. He was out there on the field more uh, over the course of the game. That more going forward. But this is, to you bring up the point about, and, and again, Moorhead even mentioned it yesterday in, in one of the lines that he had about Brown and saying, no, you know what? He's not Mariota, and he's not Dennis Dixon, and he's not Justin Herbert. But he doesn't have to be, and he has to know what he's good at and the things that are going to help him be successful and help the offense and the team be successful, and he doesn't have to be those guys. Now, the fans, I understand, they want well, their quarterbacks to be Marcus Mariota. I, I understand. But be that as it may. Here's wait, wait. One th- the, he doesn't have uh, to be to still have some wins, but – he needs to be if they're going to get where the fans want and expect to be. That's the problem. But here's so the thing. That's but, not Brown's but, but, fault. That's right. the fan expectation fault. But that's the, why they but this freak is a, out. This is a fan I'm not base, justifying it. I'm this just is a fan why. base. This is the same fan base who right now, a good portion of them, a significant portion of them, want to pack it in, go to the freshman, play the long <laughs> game, and don't even think that there is any expectation for the season. They want to give up on a top 10 team and play the long game for next year. So... I don't want to hear about, oh, well, their expectation is the playoffs this year and Brown can't get us there. What are you worried about? It? The same people tell me you don't even care about being a top 10 team when the Big Ten East is about to cannibalize itself and knock a bunch of teams out of the way. You want to give it in and, and turn to a freshman who you convinced is going to be markedly better. And he might be in the long run. But right now you're willing to give it all up for a, guy, for a quarterback who in the fourth quarter has an efficiency rating of over 200. That's uh, a bit oh, much. Yeah. It's that's that's asinine. You're right. The the one <laughs> consistent point, and we'll get to, and we'll get to UCLA here in just a sec. The one consistent point that seems to me 
It's been it's over the course of now multiple coordinators, multiple quarterbacks, uh, even potentially multiple head coaches, quite frankly. The position group that it's bizarre to me has been immune from criticism or not so much. I don't even think it's so much criticism. I don't, that, that's probably the wrong word. A deeper examination uh, and critique is better than criticism, I'd say. What is the common thread to all of these issues, whether we're talking about the offense with Herbert, the offense with now Brown, the offense with Shuck, the offense under Moorhead, the offense under Arroyo? This receiving core. Receiver? The receiving core. Who did you want Justin Herbert to throw the ball to? Who do you want Anthony Brown Jr. <laughs> to throw the ball to? This team's top two receivers are still its super seniors. And listen, Johnny Johnson III and Jalen Red are playing the best in that group right now. They deserve to be the leading two receivers on this team right now. But neither one of them are first, second, third, or fourth round draft picks. This is true, but now that does not mean that does not mean that they can't be effective players at the college level. But the best receiver on this team in the last four or five years was Dylan Mitchell, who set records and I believe was a sixth or seventh round pick. After that. It's been messy. And Juwan Johnson, who converted to tight end and is now off the league, and he was an undrafted guy, but ultimately is now having some success in the league. And he, in his one year as a grad, you know, as a grad transfer, came in and when healthy, he played well. The problem was is that he had a nagging hamstring that, that knocked him out for several games. But point is, it, oh, and by the way, Jake Breland's production, like that didn't happen. Again, he would have won the Mackey in 19, if not for getting hurt halfway through the year. They have had the production. They have made the most of the weapons at their disposal. The problem I would point out, whether we're talking about with Herbert and under Arroyo in the earlier years under Cristobal, or frankly, even the year with Taggart, or now with Moorhead and whether it was Shuck or Brown, is that they inherited, inherited a receiving group that was not terribly well stocked by way of caliber of depth of talent, and that replacing that talent takes time. They've had four recruiting classes. Right. I agree. And part of and what's happened by way of staff turnover at that position more than any other position on the staff. Good receivers are going to are going to be good regardless of their position coach. Yeah, but who's going to go out and get them? Is my point. First they inherited a mess and then it was compounded by a receiving coach I mean... who didn't go out and get a whole lot of guys in that first year. Then another receiving coach who was here for a year and lost one of the top guys that they had to Arizona State. And then now they bring in a receiving coach who has gone out and landed three freshmen and now has more guys lined up. That's for the long term. But in terms of, and by the way, yes, adding a Juwan Johnson in there as a transfer along the way who did help insofar as he could when he was on the field when he was there in 19. But the group was what it was. It was in, in, and yes, I with you, Aaron. Hey, you, sooner or later, you got to say you have no time to fix this. Hey, some of it is you hit sometimes, you miss some others. Some of it is some of those guys haven't necessarily been targeted as much. We're talking about guys who are here now. All right, 
Devin had his moments here or there, his flashes of moments last season, now this past game. Micah Pittman, unfortunately for two years, dealt with a ton of injuries. And this year has not gotten consistent targets, quite frankly. That's, and I'm not going to get into the point and fingers of why that is. It just, that's just fact. He's not been targeted a ton. Some of that is, you know, there's, there's reasons for it on both sides of the coin. But bottom line, this is not the deepest, the most talented on the, as far as top end receivers for fan base who wants an offense that's in the top 10. Look at top 10 offenses. They usually have first round receivers. This program has not had a first round receiver. In a minute. Okay, so let me let me counter this. Okay, I, I don't completely agree, disagree with you. However, the arguments about what Herbert's doing in the NFL versus what he did at Oregon are completely overblown because he does have way better receivers in, at what the Chargers than he does than he did at really. No Keenan Allen and Mike and Williams are better than anybody he, he had at Oregon. You don't say. Not it's not even remotely close, right? Now people will say, yeah, but you're playing better defenses. Yeah, but that when you have guys who can get separation regardless of who's covering them. That's what makes a difference. And he has guys who can go get the ball and make big plays when he throws it up there for them. Also, the Justin Herbert we saw his junior and senior year compared to the Justin Herbert who showed up for the Chargers after nine months of getting ready for that rookie season was a completely different dude. He was just a way better player. A lot of people want to ignore that as well because there were times his last year, even at Oregon, where he was pretty inconsistent on some throws. He used to he would sail things along the sideline. Anything along the sideline was 50-50, whether or not it would be, remain in the field of play sometimes. So he got a lot better. That all said, we the problem is, like when you talk about the fan base wanting something and there aren't the receivers to get it done with, this is a fan base, though, that saw, bring up his name again, <laughs> but I'm going to give you the, 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 the context. The year Mariota won the Heisman, the Ducks had 250 yards of returning offensive production, the least the program had had since 1996, and almost all belonged to Keenan Lowe. He went out there and won the Heisman, throwing for 4,400 yards and 42 touchdowns to Devin Allen, Dwayne Stanford, Darren Carrington, Byron Marshall, who had moved to wide receiver as a running back, Keenan Lowe, who I think never had more than 300 yards in a season, and Charles Nelson. None of those guys are in the NFL. I think Marshall might have been a seventh-round pick. I don't think Carrington got drafted. None of those guys got drafted other than maybe Marshall very, very late. So that was a completely green, inexperienced group with guys who – didn't go to the NFL, and they put up massive offensive numbers. And so that's what people are freaking out about because they've seen it done before, regardless of the caliber of targets. These are Division One scholarship athletes. They might not be NFL future stars, but they can play at the, at the college level, and they're, they're being given this offense, even with Herbert and even now, that's just watered down, bland, boring, not explosive, not fast-paced, and that is what built the Oregon brand to what it is, not what they're seeing right now. That's why they're so frustrating. That's what, that, that said, they still shouldn't be booing Anthony Brown, but that's the disconnect for fans. This offense looks like boo-boo compared to what they're used to. They're just going to have to suffer through Looking well, at they're, a, not gonna suffer, they're not going to suffer. They're not going to suffer for long. Looking, looking, at, looking with, at a trophy case with with multiple conference. Don't say it. Trophies. Oh, see, okay, see, see. They're just going to have to suffer through that. Stop. Clearly, okay, that Aaron worked, really that suffers through in 19, it. As you can tell. But that worked. No, but that worked in nineteen when you had Herbert and you had a dominant defense. If you don't have a dominant defense, you don't have Herbert. People will see the writing on the wall, and it's a little alarming because. I don't know how many times I've seen a wide receiver put on an Oregon hat and everyone's celebrating like, oh my God, oh my God, that's wide receiver. 
Where's the explosion? Where's the plays? Where's the open field? Where's, I, I, I didn't see one receiver that makes catches like Darren Carrington and Dwayne Stanford used to make on 50-50 balls. I haven't seen one guy stretch the defense like Byron Marshall did and Darren Carrington or Devin Allen. I haven't seen anyone in open field make the plays that Charles Nelson used to make or even Byron Marshall as a receiver. That's the problem that people are having. And then you have a sixth-year senior quarterback who's only eligible because of COVID, and you've had five years of recruited quarterback since the news, since Taggart took over. So that's why people are frustrated. That said, don't boo the guy. I've always taken the position in terms of what fans can or can't do. You, you buy, <laughs> you, you buy a ticket. Do, you know, it's your prerogative. But, I mean, ultimately, with a degree of civility here, I'm not uh, condoning everything, but I mean, you buy a ticket. You want to express yourself, you know, how you want to express yourself. That's that's fine. Whether it's cheering, booing, or anything else, you know, but booing college kids, booing your college guys. I, I just don't. I I don't. Buy I'm that. not telling you what I would do. I'm saying you buy a ticket. If that's you know, you're ultimately free to do it now. So if I buy a ticket to a fifth grade play, I can go and boo the kid when he messes up his lines? No. There's got to be a certain point right. where you the say this point, is not the fair. Certain, the certain point for it, me is that. Amateur the, athletes. Even, we're calling these really amateur. They're amateur athletes. Thank you for embra- not making- thank you for. I'm sure. I'm sure Mark Emmert. I'm sure Mark Emmert would love to. Uh, that he is going to send you a thank you card for that. Okay. They're mostly scholarship athletes. Is Anthony okay. Brown raking in millions? Not getting pro? No, he's All a right. college guy right. and he's a good person. Don't Again, boo him. I'm not because talking he missed about the third and fourth play. I'm not. I'm not talking about what I would do or what I find to be classy or civil or right or wrong. I'm saying I don't get into preaching at fans about what they can and can't or should or shouldn't do because to me there's never winning involved with in, in that debate or argument. <laughs> um, to me it's just, all right, do whatever. Now, so therefore, if you do do that and people do say that's not classy or the wrong thing to do, well, you can't say – you, you don't have a counter to it. You chose to go that route. You chose to take that action. Having said all that, um, to me, the thing of this past week was it was the, the manifestation of two plus, three plus, really close to a month of internal infighting and whatnot. And here was the first home game where anything that was going to go wrong, pe- there, were, there were people who showed up on Friday night out for blood and they were just going to do what they did. <laughs> right. um, it, now, to your point, it's when... It's when those actions, it's when those expressions are so not in line with what's happening on the field where you just go like, this just comes off as foolish, if not, frankly, far worse. You just go, this just sounds absurd because on the play where it's just not designed to do what you think it's designed to do, or like I say, sometimes when it's just not a wrong decision at all. Uh, those are the ones you're just going like, look, I know you want your team to win and pick up first downs, but sometimes you're just, I mean, you're just wrong on this particular situation. Uh, and again, and on the body as a whole of the night, when he ends up not just scoring late and giving you a win, but on a night as a whole where he has a strong performance as a whole, not great, not otherworldly, but certainly not terrible and not even bad just strong statistically and production and efficiency and everything else. Yeah. doesn't come off great. Doesn't come off great. 
Lastly, for just a couple of minutes here, uh, the matchup at UCLA. Obviously, we have, uh, yes, it's facing Chip again, and this is a win well, now. Let me make one more, one more yeah, yeah. public service quick point. Part of the problem also is that people still have this fantasy that Ty Thompson is Herbert waiting behind Dakota Prukop. And maybe he is. You, you, but what, what, maybe he is. I've said numerous, I've said numerous times that I've talked to numerous people say he isn't ready. I think you've said the same thing. I just talked to two other form, two, excuse me, the two former Ducks who also have, you know, team sources. One of them told me that he was told, and this is obviously third hand, I'm just, Relaying it, he was told that Thompson's closer to being third string than to being the starter. The say, I don't know why we keep just jumping to Thompson, <laughs> just because we know he's the backup when Butterfield is is right there and and he showed pretty capable in the spring, fall, camp, and yeah, all he, that. He, you know. He's considered to be completely unready as well. But that's part of the angst too, is that people and then people see Williams from Oklahoma. One right, guy going. One guy. I, I, I'm just. I, I know. I'm just telling you why it is part of why it is this way. The formula that's happening here. But if fans could just give Mario some credit and say, Mario probably knows that Thompson's not ready. Therefore, Brown's our guy. Let's rally around Brown as best we can. But there's this. I swear to God, man. There's this fancy out there. People think just put in Thompson. And he's gonna win the Heisman. And we're gonna go undefeated. People actually think that. And it's, it's annoying because I feel like they're being completely disrespectful with the coaching staff because they're basically saying that the coaching staff are buffoons because if that were the case, then Mullen should just fire everybody because that would be a dereliction of duty. But it's just not the case. And everyone I've talked to directly have said that and people I've talked to who've talked to other people have said that, that if they put Ty Thompson out there, it's not going to go well. Anyway, we can move on to UCLA now. It's and just, again, this has nothing to do with what the long term of these young quarterbacks is. Yeah, this is just today. To do with <laughs> the job is to win a football game today, and not for nothing. They're five and one. Right? Are they they're really? in the top ten? I could have sworn like, they were like one and five based on. I mean, yeah. You know, oh well, you know they're not dominant. You know what? There's teams who've played for and even won national championships and Super Bowls at the next level mm-hmm. that weren't dominant, that didn't have great quarterbacks. It is allowed. Just because the last two years we have seen two of the greatest teams ever assembled in the history of college football doesn't mean it's the only way to actually win in college football. Like, it's just a degree of, you know, rationalization and context here. But to this week's game with UCLA, yes, it's obviously facing Chip again. He's in a win-now year, a year that started off on the right foot, has now gotten a little rocky a little rocky now they are coming off a win at washington so things are a little bit better but it is kind of this ebb and flow uh, of things for chip right now in ucla dorian thompson robinson has obviously been around for forever uh the ducks are supposed to play him last season he didn't end up playing in the game at otson uh, so they didn't face him a year ago they faced him earlier in his career zach charbonnet and britain brown britain brown a running back that they did play last year charbonnet the transfer from michigan they are, right now, especially once Verdell went down, they are now, far and away, the top running back duo uh, in the Pac-12, probably followed by Oregon State's two uh, at this point. Dulcich at tight end is, in my opinion, the best tight end in the league. Uh, and, again, Oregon knows that as well. I think this team is pretty loaded by way of experienced players, uh, by way of effective players at the skilled positions offensively. And, again, defensively, UCLA has 
on paper, the best run defense in the league. When you get into certain splits against either winning teams or conference opponents, it goes down a little bit. So I'm not saying Oregon's not going to have any success on the ground, hardly. But these are two teams that are built to go on the ground first, to rely on dual-threat quarterbacks. And in the case of UCLA, they are built around really their back seven in the defense, which just has a ton of experience. And also has some players on the line as well, not to look past them. But they have got some really effective linebackers, nickel, safeties, corners. They have just got a ton of experience. Your thoughts on Saturday's matchup, and it is a big-time game, and you know the full ABC treatment with Fowler and Herb Street and the whole to-do. Ducks are in trouble. <laughs> they're, they're in big trouble. Uh, this now they're one and zero when I pick against them, so take what I say with a grain of salt. But this to me is the matchup where you take the way they played the last three weeks. If they play that way against UCLA, they're losing by a couple of touchdowns because UCLA is going to take advantage of a sputtering offense that keeps giving them the ball back, which Cal couldn't do, which Stanford couldn't do. Uh, excuse me, with the Arizona especially couldn't do, and Stanford for, for part of the game as well. They're going to take advantage of that because they can run the ball and, and with a lot of different sets, specifically with multiple tight end sets, which you have pointed out week in and week out is a severe uh, point of disaster for the Ducks at times. They're going to do a lot of, you know, very savvy formationing, misdirection, things like that to create openings for the running backs, space for receivers and for their tight ends, et cetera, to make plays with their dynamic tight ends as receivers as well. And they have a dual threat quarterback who, when he gets into some trouble and the, the, the routes aren't there, they aren't open, is going to be able to make a play with his legs and make a dynamic play at that. Plus, this is a team that had Oregon on the ropes last year. I think it was 38-35 was the final. Um, they handled Kayvon pretty well in that game. I think he only had four tackles, no, no sacks or hurries or anything, or hits, QB hits or anything like that. I think they're going to scheme well against him. And I think this team, there's, I can't imagine how UCLA doesn't score in the 30s. So the question is, can Oregon get into the high 30s to win this game? I see no evidence that they can based on every game this year except for one um, against a good team, I should say. And so, yeah, I think the Ducks are in big trouble. It's To me, I think at this point, it draws up as at this point, today, today. It may, to be clear, this may change in a couple of weeks because I do want to see more from Oregon State by way of the matchup. Right. To be clear. But as of today, I think this is the toughest game remaining on their schedule for myriad reasons. I actually think the fact that it's on the road at the Rose Bowl plays to their advantage. There is no home field advantage at the Rose Bowl for UCLA. Their losses have come at home, not on the road. Uh, it is a stadium where you know they tarp off huge sections of the, the stands, uh, so they don't they don't have fan support. They would they they literally have to give away tickets to anyone with a pulse who they can find. To show up, I mean, <laughs> what are they drawing? They, they were what are they drawing? oh, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's embarrassing. Um, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, they're one of the worst in the country by way of attendance uh, for the Power Five level. They're that they might be the worst uh, from a, as a percentage of capacity standpoint. Um, well, there may be, there may fair. be. That's why you have to judge it. You can't judge it on gross number. The stadiums that are hundred thousand are always going to outdraw Oregon, but Oregon's going to closer to you know. No, this season's going to be like 90 percent, but generally it's over hundred. Um, yeah, so you have to go on a percentage that's basis. Not fair to an percent of capacity okay. anyway bottom line they don't have fan support that's <laughs> just objectively true 
Um, they, it's not a noisy place to play. I'm looking it up. Um, they don't have so that they're frankly there probably be more Oregon fans there than than UCLA fans there. So that plays to Oregon's advantage. Um, just as long as the Oregon fans who are there don't start booing their own team again, um, that, that <laughs> definitely will play into their advantage. Uh, I don't imagine that the uh, uh, swath from the student section who is at Otson doing that uh, will be the ones traveling to Los Angeles uh, on Saturday. So with that, UCLA said, is running. UCLA is drawing forty eight thou, dude. That's good for LA. That's impressive. Boy, no? your, your bar and my bar are two very different things when it comes to attendance. Um, be that as it may, Oregon, I think the fact that it's on the road plays their advantage. It's certainly better on the road than playing at home, not just because of environment. Or no, talk about, look at the weather for this weekend. It's going to be in the 50s and rainy in Eugene versus in the 70s and sunny in L.A. Uh, so that aspect of things plays into it. I think it's going to it's just ideal conditions. Uh, again, not a tough place to play as a road environment at all, at all all uh not whatsoever so those things i think play to their favor i don't think just like i talked about how cows run defensive numbers where i thought a little bit inflated i think it's the same thing with ucla and by the way oregon topped the average the cow was allowing as i said they would i think they probably will not just on the gross number because it's under 100 yards i think ucla is allowing right now oregon's gonna top 100 yeah Yeah. oregon's gonna top 100 but when you get into like against conference opponents or winning teams you know it's a smaller sample but anyway yeah they'll i I think they'll still run for a decent clip i think it really does get down to some of the i think it's going to be a one score game one way or another and i think it's going to come down to the finest of points and it's going to sound basic and obvious but certain trends of look when Oregon tops 200 yards rushing, they generally win the game. The first time they've lost on a crystal ball doing that was at Stanford in the overtime game a couple of weeks ago. It was the first time. They topped 200 How many times did they top 200? Under crystal ball? I yeah, like think it's like five times. Uh, try almost 20, I think, at this point. So they've, <laughs> been, they've, uh, they've done it well. Um, I think if they hit that <laughs> against this times. UCLA team, that it'll go well for them in that regard. Um, by the way, uh, Cal's pass defense may not have been very good, and they did hit some plays there. UCLA's pass defense, even with those seniors and those older players who I mentioned, statistically their pass defense is not good. Is not good at all. So not just in terms of, yeah, explosive plays. They want to create explosive plays. They want more explosive plays. The fan base wants more explosive plays. Yes, but it doesn't always have to be of that variety. If they have to dink and dunk their way down the field, so be it. But it can be done by way of putting the ball in the air against this defense. On the ground, which is where things start for the Oregon offense, yeah, I think that's that's certainly going to be the – it may be the deciding factor in the game. Are they able to have the kind of success they look for on the ground against UCLA? If they can, then hey, then I think they're, they're – you know, they, they probably win the game. On the other side, slowing down Charbonnet and Brown is going to be a challenge. Not just because they're good and whatnot. No, it's going to be a challenge because of all the things we talked about for six games. <laughs> UCLA is going to use multiple tight ends. They're going to use unbalanced offensive lines. I mean, all the things that Mario mentioned in his press conference yesterday that he mentions basically on a weekly basis about opponents sometimes. And then you go, all right, so then why weren't you able to – if you know it's there, basically where, why isn't the success of the results necessarily there at times against certain schematic you know, matchups or what have you? Um, whether or not they're able to contain Dulcich or Phillips, 
again, Dulcich is the best tight end in the league. I think they actually match up pretty decently with him, with Jamal Hill. I think they match up pretty well with him. I really do. Um, Phillips is really big. He's their most explosive outside guy. And it sounds like he's going to be back. He missed the Washington game, but it sounds like he's going to be back this week. So they they have some weapons there. But I think ultimately it comes down to can they stop the run. And that includes a run with Dorian Thompson Robinson as well. I think the key is much as having KT there and getting pressure on DTR is going to be big in certain spots. I think this is the kind of game that, quite frankly, you want to just focus on making DTR beat you with his arm. And I'm I'm just somebody, while he has gotten better over his career, that's undeniable, I'm just somebody who I have, I have never really bought into his being held in, in the high regard that he is by way of quarterbacks in this league. I've just never really saw his, his passing ability at that level. Um, I, I, I still don't see it, quite frankly. So I think that they may, if they're able to both affect him in certain passing situations, but whether it's first or second down passing when they do, which they really lean run, but when they do, I, I think they can create, if they can keep him in the pocket and not let him be an effective runner with the running backs, they might be able to have some success there. But ultimately, I think it's a one-score game. Whether it's a one-score, literally 28-24, 28-27, 31-28, I think it's somewhere around there. But to your point, I, 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 don't, I don't think this game, let's put it this way, I don't think this game is going to be played you know, 38-35 or 42-35 unless it goes to overtime. I think this is a game that's played in the high 20s, and if it hits over 30, it's somewhere around 31, 35 at the most. I just don't see it. Um, getting more than that because stylistically, I think they just like to run. They both like to run the ball so much. Last week, I said it with Cal that they weren't going to score a whole lot of points, and they didn't because they can't. Usually, they can score points, but I think stylistically in the matchup, these are two teams that are just going to run the ball so much that I'm not sure they're either going to have the ball that much to, to put up 35 or 42 points. <laughs> Someone's got to have yeah. the ball. It's good. Yeah, someone's going to have the ball, but it may be really long, sustained drives. It's just the way the game kind of plays out. But yeah, you hope for those explosive plays. But when the opponent is going to go out there and run their two running backs and their quarterback and potentially have 11 and 12 play drives that eat five and six minutes off the clock, the only way you can break them from that is, yeah, either with a ton of explosive plays, which we've just talked about for weeks, including today, that they've been lacking, or you have to kind of fight fire with fire a little bit. Right. So, well, it's gonna, it's it. gonna be interesting. It's, I, I yeah. agree with you on Thompson and Robinson in that he's not <clears throat> an elite passer, but he doesn't turn the ball over. Two only two picks, sixty percent, which obviously is solid. And when they do throw, they get a lot of big plays. Like they, you know, when people try and take away their running attack, they do a good job of generating big plays to make them pay, especially on play action with those damn tight ends running free. I mean, every week, I mean, I'm not going to say I watch their games fully all the time, but every week when I watch highlights of the Pac-12, I see tight ends running around <laughs> making big plays, and they're, av- they're second in the conference in, in yards per attempt at 8.5 and first in yards per completion at 14. So they're running the ball extremely well. They have a quarterback that you don't want to have carry you, but when he's asked to pass, he generates big plays. I just feel like what, based on what we've seen out of Oregon, that is just all a recipe for disaster. And like I said, I'm putting the over-under for UCLA at 33 and a half. And I'm going over. You like how I set my own line so I can go over it? I <laughs> No? I'm not sure they get there. Only only really? because the defense has played well by way of scoring. Against and nobody, even, though. 
Okay. Against scrubs. Here's the thing. Against Arizona, Stanford, and Cal. Hey, it's they a played animal. They've they've played to their level of competition in six games. Whether that level was down for five games or up for one, they've played to their level of competition. Okay. And again, they gave up six hundred yards. Well, they gave up six hundred yards against Ohio State. So defense didn't play particularly well, but and, they made and, a couple and stops. They've got, and they've they made got a couple like stops. Five guys back since that game. Okay. So. Again, we will obviously go over it next week. That's what's week. fun about it. We, yes. We'll come back Monday, and one of us will say, I told you so, and the other one will Man. say, oh, well. Again, I'm, to be clear, <laughs> I've, I've, so far my early pick, I think I think I picked like either 28-24 28-27, but I'm going to be all over the map on it this week. I'm going to be swayed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I really am. I'm just going to go back and forth. I'll, I'll get my pick in later in the week, but I I could see it honestly either way, but I think it's going to be I'm a one-score 36-27. 36 36-27. 36-27. My backside. It's a weird. I like picking weird, weird numbers. Number. I know. I like. We'll see if, if Aaron hits on thirty six. <laughs> we will see you all next week. We appreciate you for listening to this edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Ducks Confidential Podcast wherever you get your podcast. That way, it goes to your phone, your device, your tablets, whatever the case is, wherever you get your podcast and listen to them. Make sure to subscribe. Give us a five star review and ranking and everything and all that, so that way more people can find it as well. So we appreciate you for listening. As always, I'm James Creppy. He is Aaron Fentress, and we will see you next week.